Today's reading will be from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brian. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Um, my name is Frank Switzer, and I am not a guest pastor. So just in case you're wondering, I am back. Uh, good to see you all. A um, couple things before we get started. Uh, uh, the last two Sundays, we've had um, Tyler James, who was just up here doing the dedications, uh, give his first sermon ever. And it was awesome, was it not? Yeah. For those of you that heard it, you should go online and listen to it. It was a great way to wrap up uh, Philippians. And then uh, last week, we had uh, Jake Sablodnik come in from Tempe. Tempe and, and Arcadia switched last week. I was over at... Um, Tempe, and that was, that was a lot of fun, um, and there were a couple of people from uh, Arcadia there, and they were wondering if they'd driven to the wrong church, but um, at any rate, um, Jake has actually been around Redemption for as, almost as long as I have. I've known him for seven years and, and knew he would do a great job, and he did a fantastic job uh, as well. Appreciate those guys uh, filling in while I was away. Um, what we're going to be doing today is one more what we call... Um, one-off week between our series. We finished Philippians a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're starting Exodus, 15 weeks in Exodus uh, next Sunday. And because it's only 15 weeks in a book that's 40 chapters long, and the chapters themselves are very long, um, I, I would just highly encourage you to start reading that book and read it and reread it and reread it. It is a rich book. It is a uh, it's considered the gospel of the Old Testament, and, and so we're going we're to be doing a flyover, but it's going to be an important 15 weeks for us. So I would just highly encourage you in that. Uh, but we have this other one-off week here, and um, uh, every summer for the last 23 years, I have pastored a family camp in, in northeast Iowa, and for the first uh, 12 or 13 years of my ministry, uh, when I came back from the camp, I would do a one-off message called What I Learned at Summer Camp. And because of the preaching calendar that we have at Redemption Church for the last seven years, I haven't been able to do that. This year, however, we had an open Sunday, and I wasn't even thinking about doing it until I started getting texts from people who remembered uh, these messages literally from 10 years ago saying, okay, so you're at camp right now. Are you going to do that message about what I learned at summer camp? And I thought, okay, yeah, I think I will. I have learned some things here, or at least been reminded. So um, that's what we're going to do today. One off, what I learned at summer camp. Going to be kind of a lot of fun up front, but then we're going to get very serious in the last uh, half of the, of the message. So let me tell you a little bit about um, the camp. It's uh, called Village Creek Bible Camp, and uh, it's a camp and conference center in northeast Iowa. I'm going to say that several times because 
whatever idea you have in your mind about Iowa, you probably need to get rid of it because Northeast Iowa doesn't look like the rest of Iowa. The rest of Iowa, you know, flat and corn. Doesn't look anything like that, okay? So you just need to understand that. It looks more like uh, Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. But this, this camp and conference center, during the summer, they have full week camps, 13 of them. They have three what's called junior camps where they have uh, kids from third to sixth grade come in, about 150 of them. Uh, then they have uh, uh, three middle school camps, so they have about 150 middle schoolers. Then they have three high school camps, they have, again, about 150 high schoolers come in. And then they have um, four what they call family camps, where you bring your entire family. And the structure of family camp is, is considerably different than the other three types of camps. It's, it's more geared towards families, and there's a lot of stuff for adults, but there's also a lot of stuff uh, for children. Uh, the rest of the year... Three out of every four weekends, they just do conferences and retreats. And I've spoken at uh, some of the retreats as well, couples retreats. In fact, I'm going back in March to speak at their couples retreat uh, then. And when I say that I've pastored um, this camp, I, I pastor family camp number three now for 23 years. And when I say that I've pastored uh, that camp that week, it means that I spoke at six of the ten chapels that they have during the week. And let me just stop there and say, yes. These are people who are paying money to go on vacation to a place where they will go to church 10 times in a week, okay? So that might scare some of you, I understand that, but it's a lot of fun. I just, I'm, I'm hoping I can get that across. But I, would, I, spoke at, I usually speak at six of the 10 chapels during the week, and then I spend much of the rest of my time meeting with couples and individuals that, um, for various reasons. Um, Jackie and the kids have been going almost all 23 years. This was the first year I went completely alone without any, anybody else from the family. They still wanted me to come back. But I will tell you that Jackie and I have some tremendous uh, relationships and long-term friends that we've built up uh, over the years uh, through this camp. Uh, our children have also built up a lot of friendships uh, through this camp as well. Um, as I said, it's in Northeast Iowa. It's the interesting part of Iowa, I would argue. Um, anybody from Iowa? Uh, yeah. Okay, one. So this is not landing at all. Anyway, um, so it's, it's, it's very rugged in northeast Iowa. Lots of hills, lots of bluffs, covered with forests um, everywhere. And uh, this camp is nestled in 220 beautiful acres, 35 miles south of La Crosse, Wisconsin, and about three miles off the Mississippi River. Uh, it's very close to a little tiny town of 1,500 people called Lansing, uh, Iowa. And there's a bunch of things to do. I'm going to show you a video in a minute to give you an idea of what to do, but I'll just tell you. So there's, there's archery, there's rocketry. Anybody ever build rockets when you were growing up? Um, do we have any physicists who are building rockets now? I'm just curious, okay. Um, they have crafts. Uh, they have this thing called a blob on their lake. They have a little lake. They, they, yeah, there's some nodding heads. Yeah, you know what a blob is. They have laser tag. They have paintball. They have an incredible zip line. They have tremendous uh, ropes courses. Um, they have one of those trampolines with the harness so you can go really high. Um, they have a, a, it, it's on Village Creek, 
And so they have tubing on the creek, and then they have this other thing that I've actually never done in 23 years called creek, creek stomping. I don't know what creek stomping is, but apparently you get very dirty and muddy doing it. Um, they have a, a full gym, so you can play volleyball, basketball, floor hockey, and then they have their chapels in the gym. Outdoors, they have softball and soccer. They have pickleball this year. That was something new. They had pickleball. Um, they have a, a ton of horses. They have wranglers there. They have horsemanship camps that are going on at the same time as the other camps. Um, they, they, if you want, they have the clay pigeons that they can launch, and, and you can shoot it with a shotgun. I think I don't even know what it's called, but they, you can do that if you want. They have the adults do that, though. Um, and then they have something called creature feature, where they... They collect reptiles and rodents, and, and, and they have people who are trained that will pull them out of uh, their habitats, and then they'll let the kids pet them and get bit by them and all stuff, kinds of stuff like that. It's really fun. Uh, my, one of my favorite things to do there is every afternoon, they load up a, tra uh, a trailer with kayaks, and they go down to the Mississippi River, and we kayak the Mississippi River. That is absolutely incredible, kayaking the Mississippi River. Um, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, there has not been a year yet when we haven't seen a bald eagle on that kayaking trip. They're all over the Mississippi River we saw two this time. There's, for me especially, but for some of the other guys who go to the camp, there's one guy that's been running with me every single year. Uh, there's an eight-mile running loop that's through dirt roads and forested hills. It's absolutely beautiful. And generally in the mornings, in late July and early August, it's in the high 50s, low 60s with fog. And so it's just, it, it is way better than being here. You, can you get, start to understand why I don't want to be here during that, during that week. Um, there's lots of also free time at the family camps to read or nap or just visit with friends. And here you go. Some people ask, okay, but what about the food? It's camp food. It must be horrible. No, 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 no. Uh, this is, I, I cannot, I cannot overemphasize how good the food is there. Um, and the kitchen is very careful during family camp um, to make sure that at almost every meal there is a healthy choice so you can eat healthy, but then there's also a nasty choice, and I'm talking nasty good, not nasty bad. This, I mean, it is, it is really good food. Um, they always have a worship team there. They had a very young worship team there this time, but it was one of the best we've ever had. The worship music is fun and worshipful. Primarily the people that go to, there were 50 families there and they were over capacity during this camp. Uh, and the, primarily the families are from Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, and then just family camp three for whatever reason. There's a group of families that come up from Kansas and I've actually gotten very close to many of them. Our youngest daughter, Darby, uh, met her husband, Joey, at this camp. Their family uh, came to camp, our family came to camp, and then Darby and Joey have worked during the summers in high school and college as counselors at the camp. That's where they met. And three years ago, they got married at that camp. If you want a, a challenging destination wedding, have it in rural northeast Iowa. But Jackie put all of that together, and it was absolutely magnificent. Uh, so this is a very, very special place for us. Shelby has also, our oldest daughter Shelby has also worked there as a counselor um, just lots and lots of friends. And, and so here's just a taste visually. It's a little, about a two-minute video of what's available at the camp. This, this video is driven more towards the kids, but you'll see some adults there, and you'll get an idea of what it's like up there. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong. 
at the end of the line Cause I'm just a nobody I'm trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood-bought Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name Well, that's fine with me I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus Cause I'm just a nobody Right, so uh, let's see, where are we? All right, now, this week was uh, also a little bit more special uh, for, for me and for the camp. Um, we actually had uh, four people get baptized uh, at the end of the camp, and um, three of them uh, specifically said they wanted to wait to get to camp so that I could baptize them, so that was really special. Um, I've got some pictures. Uh, the other person that got baptized is actually in uh, a foster child, and so can't show anything of her. But this was at their lake, a little baptism ceremony uh, getting started. And that's Thomas and Thomas's father, Bob. Uh, proper baptism liturgy. He was wearing a Milwaukee Brewers shirt. So that was good. So that was Thomas. And then, um, and don't worry about the green water. It's actually greener than that. So, um <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so this is uh, Jotham and Evangeline um, Bile, and their family and our family have been friends for the last 20 years. They're from Wichita. Um, uh, that's, that's Jotham. Uh, Jotham is a cross-country runner now, you can tell by his physique, but his dad and I have been running those loops together for the last 20 years, and now all of his sons come out. He's got one, they've got one daughter, and they've got four sons. They all come out and run with us every morning, so it's just a big pack of us heading out there. There's Evangeline. Evangeline, Evangeline. I, I can never say her name right. Anyway, very, very, very uh, special time for us uh, there. Um, at one point, that, that, was, that was the baptism uh, service. Uh, right before the baptism service, everybody was out at the lake playing, and they call it Wacky Water Friday or something, and it was the last full day of the camp. And uh, there's another pastor that always comes to pastor with me, and every year it's a different person. I'm, I'm kind of the consistent one, and then they bring a different one in, sort of to balance me off, I think. But his name is Josh Dorrell, and he's from Galveston, Texas, and I'll tell a little bit of his story in a minute. But um, we got together right before the ceremony and said, Why, with Jotham, let's do a blob baptism, and uh, I'll video it, and Joth will jump off the the thing and, and we'll blob Jotham. So here's that eight second video. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So 
If you want to be baptized like that, you're going to have to come to Iowa. We just have that trough here, so sorry about that. Uh, one other picture I want to, I want to show you um, uh, is of Jotham and, and Evangeline. Uh, so notice Jotham's phone. He's 17 years old. He had a smartphone for three years, and he got rid of it. And I, and I said, what are you doing with a flip phone? And he said, I got rid of it. He said, I, I just, I was too distracted by it. I was spending too much time on it. And the only way I could do it was to go back to a flip phone. Yeah, see? See, we're starting to get that now. I appreciate that. All right. So the other pastor was Josh uh, Godorl. Uh, Josh has an interesting connection to the camp uh, because he was saved. God saved him at this camp when he was uh, 19 years old. And then he met the daughter of a family who has been going to that camp the same week for the same 23 years that Jackie and I and our family have been going. And so uh, there's just all these interesting connections. But he and his wife, more than nine years ago, and their family, were they felt God by, uh, called by, (laughs) felt, they were called by God. He had a dream. He had a vision. He was called by God to move to Galveston, Texas, to the worst neighborhood in Galveston, Uh, Not a place that you would go unless you were called by God. And they started something called uh, Galveston Urban Ministries. And they've been there almost 10 years. I think the logo's up there now. Yeah, there it is. Gum for short, which is kind of nice. But um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. They've been been, um, just literally transforming the neighborhood that they're um, living in. Uh, They they bought their home there uh, a little over nine years ago for $26,000. That'll give you an idea what kind of neighborhood. Um, this is, okay? So three things I learned, or honestly, I think I, more I was reminded of, okay? And this is what I want to share with you this morning uh, while I was at camp. And uh, again, there are things more, you, you realize that you and I are reminded of things way more than we learn new things. Um, and that's part of the way that we learn is to just be reminded of what we should already know. Um, and, and so more reminded than learned, but I had time away to be able to really think about these things as the camp, various events at the camp brought them to my mind to really sort of um, uh, meditate on those things and think about them more deeply. The first one is the notion of the steady plotter, the steady plotter. Um, Proverbs 21.5 in uh, the Living Bible, I appreciate how they translate uh, Proverbs 21.5, steady plotting brings prosperity, hasty speculation brings poverty. And, and this, this proverb is not just talking about financial wealth. It, it's, it's a principle for all of life, this idea of being a steady plotter. We live clearly in what I would call an easy-bake microwave world. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has even written a book about this called The Tipping Point, about how reticent we are in our culture today to embrace that tipping point. And he describes the tipping point, some of you know this, as you need to spend 10,000 hours of your life on something before you actually become proficient at it. You need to spend 10,000 hours of your life investing yourself into a work or a ministry or a project before you really can expect to start seeing transformative results. You may see little things along the way, but it takes, 
it takes tremendous amounts of time. And he uses Bill Gates and the Beatles as his, as his um, best examples, which are great because I remember both of them when they, it, it, it feels like to us that Bill Gates and the Beat, um, by the way, for those of you who are younger, the Beatles are a musical group. They're not, it's not insects. It, but it felt like they just sort of appeared on the scene. That, that Bill Gates got up one morning when he was 19 years old or whatever, and he said, okay, bought my first computer. I think I'm going to go in the garage and start a computer company, and it's going to be incredible. No, he, he dedicated 16 hours a day to learning. I mean, he... He spent his 10,000 hours learning computers in a way that most of us would never spend time. The Beatles, um, it was February 1964. I remember this. I was five years old, and I remember the family gathering around the old boob tube to watch the Ed Sullivan shoe and to see the Beatles for their first appearance in the United States on the Ed Sullivan show. And, and it just seemed like they just, boom, burst onto the scene. But the backstory is that they had spent 10 years playing six nights a week in, in uh, just awful dives throughout Europe, eating dirt for 10 years, honing their craft, perfecting it. They were patient. They were steady plotters. And, and gosh, as I, as I talk about this to people, it's so fun because they don't exactly say it like this, but the reaction I get from so many people is, is something like this. <laughs> Steady plotter, <laughs> what are you talking about, man? I'm Seabiscuit. I'm a racehorse. I'm Justify. Come on, let me at the world. I'm ready to go right now, and it's going to change like that, you know? And, and I will tell you, I, I, people, through ministry and through my work at, at Paradise Valley Community College, Grand Canyon University, even Fuller Seminary. I'm telling you, I run into people a lot. I'll be sitting with them, talking to them, having coffee, whatever it is, and they will say, I, 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 I am going to change the world. I'm going to be that person who changes the world. And I hear this from so, there are so many people out there who are going to change the world. And here you go. I, you know me. One of my dark spiritual gifts is cynicism. It kicks in a little bit. Um, I, I honestly, truly hope you are that person who changes the world. I hope you do. Um, and I hope you change it for the better, okay? Because you could also change it for the worse. But I hope you change it for the better. I really, really do. But the reality is, is you're probably not. And, and what I found is that the person who says, I'm going to change the world, and when they start to face um, the trappings of that and the challenges of that and the suffering of that, and even the failure of that, what happens is when they realize they're not going to be able to change the world, they give up on their world. And that becomes an even bigger, bigger problem. See, we are called by God not necessarily to change the world ourselves, but to be an influence in our world and to make a difference in our world, whatever that world is that God has given us. We, we need to be more faithful to that call. So be a person who is faithful where you are. Stop distracting yourself by looking around at all that magnificent stuff that's going on wherever you aren't and, and being sucked in by that and begin to realize that God has you where you are for a particular reason. Uh, Andy Warren has said it this way, you need to bloom where you're planted, and God is going to do uh, the planting. 
Be that person who shows perseverance where you are. Steady plotters don't often get the glamour. They don't. But they almost always end up with great respect and influence. And, and it's interesting because, again, I've already mentioned this a little bit, it seems like those, those who want to change the world really do believe that the only way they can change the world is they first have to go somewhere else. This is the other thing I've discovered. They can never start that process where they are. For whatever reason, they've got to pack a bag, they've got to get a passport, they've they, they got to leave where they are in order to be able to go and, and start changing the world. Here's a famous verse that so many people uh, in churches, so many Christians just embrace and love. It's Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek first the welfare of the city where I have sent you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah to tell the exiles in Israel. Seek first the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We, we love that verse, man. Seek first the welfare of the city. We, we tend to stop that verse right there, though. We hardly ever get to the next clause in that verse. The next clause in that verse, I already read it, is where I have sent you. Where I have sent you. We rarely get to choose where our ministry is going to be. We rarely get to choose where our influence is going to be. We rarely get to choose where we are going to make a difference. Rather, God gives it to us. And then we turn our nose up at that gift. And we're just sure that if we were somewhere else, something better would be happening. And we, need, we need to embrace the grace and the gift that God has already given us. So be faithful where you are and with whom you are with. And it may only be one person. That may be all that God has given you right now. It may be ten people. Maybe he's given you more influence. Maybe, maybe it's a hundred people. Maybe he's given you that kind of influence. That would be awesome. But you need to remember that Jesus, yeah, Jesus. Two syllabus, Jesus. Two, Jesus, okay. Jesus had 12 guys. And really, he just had a core of three. Oh, I got to have 20,000. No. Maybe three, maybe 12. And, and here's the other thing. Just if you do the math, okay, if all the people who are going to change the world would be faithful in their world, the world would be changed. You ever think about that? The world would actually start to change if we would just be faithful where we are. Uh, Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, uh, had a talk that he used to go around and give. It was, here you go, this is not going to sell a lot of CDs. It's called Put a Lid on Your Dreams. Yeah, see? Put a lid on your dreams. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the problem is, is that most people never define their goals. They've just got these big, massive goals that are actually, when you ask them to articulate them, they really can't. He says, you got to define your goals, and you have to be realistic about your goals so that you might actually meet them because when you create goals for yourself that you're never going to be able to meet in the first place, you get discouraged and you quit. 
You need to have goals that you can meet. You need to define your goals, and you need to put a lid on your dreams because that's when things actually start happening. There's great wisdom. There's great wisdom uh, in that. I was reminded of this because of the other pastor who was there, Josh and his family and, and Galveston Urban Ministries. They've been there nine years. And as he spoke every night at the evening chapels, uh, at one point, it just, it just came home for me. He told the story about how they had been there seven and a half years before anyone in his little community that he and his wife and his family and his staff had been serving 24 hours a day, seven days a week with little rest whatsoever. It was seven and a half years before anyone in his little community said this. It is amazing what's happening in our neighborhood. Seven and a half years before that one tiny little affirmation came through for him. And it was done by plodding and being faithful. The author Mark Manson writes this. The greatest psychological crisis we face today is the expectation of all life benefits without the sacrifice, suffering, or cost. Amen. That's so true. Steady plotting. That's Josh's story in Galveston. He'll tell you, nothing special. He is nothing special. He and his family just showed up. They were faithful and present. They never made any noise. They persevered when it was hard, and they rested on the filling of the Holy Spirit, and they served people. Ten years, almost, and they're just barely starting to write their story. Just barely. Steady plotting. Folks, real life is not in the grand. It's in the grind. That's where real life is, and we need to remember that. Uh, here's the second thing. It only goes downhill from here. Uh, here's the second thing. Um, I, I guess just I was reminded at this, at this uh, family camp watching married couples. There were single parents there as well, and there were divorced parents as well, Okay. And just watching all of them, and I was reminded, if you're married, I'm going to talk to the married people for just a minute. You single people, hang in there. I'll get back to you. I'm going to talk to the married people for just a second. Here, here's the second thing I learned. Married, take care of your spouse. Take care of your spouse. See, it's so simple. And already some of you I know have checked out. Well, if he would just start taking care of me, then maybe I'm... No, 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 no. Get rid and it works the other way. She would start taking care of me. I get it. I get it, okay? But we need to just remember to take care of our spouses. That, that's, that's the most important relationship you have on this earth. And it, and it creates family, and it creates community, and it creates connection and network. It's important. And you need to take care of your spouse. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Take care of your spouse. In the Old Testament, marriage was a picture of God, the Lord Yahweh, and his people. Take care of your spouse. I tell people in premarital counseling, it's usually towards the end of the counseling, once they're really sucked in and they're sure they're going to do this, I say, listen... Here's your responsibility in marriage. You are a picture to the rest of the world of Christ and his church. You have a responsibility in that. 
oh, it's, it's not all fun and games in, in marriage. There should be mutual sacrifice, mutual submission, and it should be done in joy, not under compulsion. So just, uh, we could talk about this for weeks I have in the past. It just one little thing. Here you go. Uh, start a little internal project with yourself here. Where you're, where you're, if you're married, I, I want you to think about how you, could, how you can surprise your spouse in a good way. Surprise them in a good way. Don't, don't hide in a closet and jump out. I'm talking about do something for them, okay? Do something for them. Delight them. Think about what might delight them. Um, and here you go. Delight in them. Marriage was created by God for us to be able to delight in our spouse. Delight in your spouse as well. Go the extra mile for your spouse. And I know you're going to say, oh, well, the, Jesus was talking about if a Roman soldier asked you to go with him. I don't think Jesus would be that upset if you also went the extra mile for your spouse. I think he'd say it's okay to apply it in that case as well. Um, when Jackie, I asked Jackie to pick me up at the airport coming back from camp. Here's just a little example. As I'm thinking about this, and then here's an example of that. I just asked her to pick me up at the airport. Uh, when she picked me up, first of all, she didn't pick me up in her flex, so I'm standing there looking for a flex, and she pulls up in my Volvo, and I'm, I'm looking, and the Volvo's right in front of me, and now she's honking, and I'm like, why is that person honking at me, you know? There's people laughing at me behind me, okay? Anyway, so, oh, she brought my car. So she, before she came to pick me up, she got my car washed, she filled it with gas, she went and picked up some dinner for us to eat, uh, when we got home, and, and here's the best part, she had put a heart CD into the CD player for me, and there was heart playing on the CD player when I got in. Again, for those of you who are younger, heart will be in town on August 28th. It's my 32nd time going to see them. It's going to be awesome, okay? They're in, the, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, they're, old, they're older than I am, okay? So anyway, so she was playing heart. So here you go. I, he, Offer to make dinner, but here's the thing. Make dinner for your spouse. And I, it's like, I make dinner every night. Okay, the one who doesn't usually make dinner, offer to make dinner, and, and if nobody wants you to make the dinner, offer to pick up dinner, okay? And, and then, and here's the key, though, and then be the one who cleans up after. Go the extra mile. <laughs> My first amen in like seven months, Okay. <laughs> Fill their car with gas when they aren't expecting it. Uh, unload uh, the dishwasher without being asked. Uh, fold the laundry. Okay, here you go. here's what I've discovered. Everyone is more than competent at being able to put a load into the washing machine. It's transferring it from the washing machine to the dryer and then pulling it out of the dryer and folding it where things just break down. <laughs> fold the laundry without being asked. If you're a dual income household, uh, surprise your spouse by making one of their payments for them out of your money. That went over like a lead balloon too, so. <laughs> Send them away on a weekend trip or to the spa. And here's the key to any of this, and you can come up with your own. Here's the key to any of this. Expect nothing in return. That's the key. The minute you make it transactional, it, it doesn't work. In fact, it'll, things will be worse in your relationship if you make it transactional. Do it without expecting anything in return.
And by the way, this is going to take some anticipation on your part. And that is a challenge for some people, right? Okay? You're going to need to occasionally anticipate a need or two of your spouses. So think, pray, put some effort into this. And husbands, I know that anticipating the unspoken needs of your wife is not your primary gifting in life. I know that. So I'm speaking to the husbands right now. You're, you're going to probably feel a little awkward and clumsy even attempting to do this. And let's face it, you'll probably miss more than you'll hit. You'll do some things that you think are pretty spectacular and they just, they, they don't quite hit. I, I understand. You're not good at this. I'm not very good at it. I get that. But you got to try. Embrace the clumsy, my brothers. <laughs> Embrace the clumsy. And here you go, good for you for trying. And wives, wives, when he misses, and he will miss, he will try and he will miss. And sometimes you'll be so confused you won't even be able to speak at what he tried. But when he misses, it is a huge mistake to be disappointed or to ridicule his effort. Because he'll never do it again if you do. When he misses, and he will, appreciate the effort. And, 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 and frankly, this is going to be easier for you wives to figure out what your husbands need, because there's only one thing that a husband needs. It's more kale. So <laughs> at least once a week, make him a kale salad, and he will love you for that, okay? Um, we were just here, but I just want to remind you, Ephesians chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some people think that that has to do with um, everything that Paul had written prior to that. Uh, and it does. In Christ, we are to submit to one another, but it also goes forward. There are ways that husbands and wives are supposed to be submitting to one another, honoring one another, loving one another, respecting one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because of who Christ is. We are to be doing this for each other. If you know Christ, you should know your role in your, in your marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, and I know, that sounds hard. But look how hard it is for the husbands too. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is about emptying ourselves, husbands and wives, and living for the other because we are a picture of Christ and the church. And we need to be that picture of Christ and the church. Some people ask me, why aren't there more verses in the Bible about marriage? And I say, okay, I get where you're coming from, uh, we would like to have a section of the Bible that just is like a book of the Bible that's just titled Marriage and its Challenges, you know, and that's not in there. What we need to realize is that just because something isn't specific to marriage doesn't mean it doesn't apply to marriage. So Philippians, we were just in Philippians, Philippians um, chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Well, that's good for everything but marriage. No, it's good for marriage too. Apply it to marriage. And now, singles, I told you I was going to speak to you. If you're single 
Actually, I'm not going to speak to you instead. I'm going to speak to the church. Uh, I see so many single people at Redemption Arcadia serving their hearts out. And often, where they are serving is in children's ministry so that parents have a place to put their children so that they can come to church. Lots of single people serving in, in, um, in children's ministry and in other places as well. For a single person, their spouse is supposed to be their faith community. It's supposed to be their church. It's supposed to be their redemption community, their small group, their home group. So how are we doing, church? Are we going the extra mile for that spouse as well? Have you ever thought about inviting a single person to coffee or lunch just to get, them, get to know them a little bit better and to hear their story? I, I recognize that it might be kind of weird to show up at their house and unload their dishwasher or fold their laundry, but there are other things that we might be able to do for them. You get the idea. Take care of your spouse. Here's the last thing. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I have the extraordinary privilege and honor in Christ, of being able to draw near to him and rest because of his finished work on the cross. Now, I admit, this is something that I had just started to noodle on before camp, but it became so clear to me at camp, primarily because when I did have some downtime, I was spending most of my downtime studying Exodus. And I began to see how important the book of Hebrews is to the book of Exodus and how important the book of Exodus is to the book of Hebrews. And I mean, Hebrews is one of the most difficult books in the New Testament to, to interpret and understand. I believe lights just started coming on for me. Going deeper into Exodus just brought, just brought Hebrews to life. And, and I began to understand that, at least begin to scratch the surface of the depth of the beauty and the joy and the privilege that we have in Christ that's in, uh, that is in the book of Hebrews. I want to I just look at a few verses in Hebrews chapter 10. The author writes in verse 1, for since, the law has, um, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the good things to come is Christ Jesus, the gospel. Crucified Christ, resurrected Christ. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That word shadow, in their context, and for centuries before, centuries after, all the way until now, the word shadow refers to that which is deficient but what also previews the perfect. The law, the law has always been deficient. It can't save us, but it previews the perfect that was to come. Jesus, who fulfilled the law, and through whose sacrifice we can now draw near to God. The fact that the law requires continuous sacrifices every year confirms that the law of God uh, is not perfect for redemption. It's not for complete salvation. It's not redemptive, but it is convicting. What is redemptive is Jesus, because when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, that means we no longer have to look to the law 
We just look to Jesus. It's finished. Those are the best words ever. Those three words, best words ever. It is finished. Look at 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. These verses restate and summarize much of the argument that the author of Hebrews makes throughout the entire book, and that is the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is, I would say he's the best, but he's in a category by himself. Verse 11 reiterates the insufficiency, the deficiency of the old covenant law, the Mosaic law. Hebrews explains that Jesus is our new, perfect, and final priest. We never need another priest. And as that final, perfect priest, he has made the final, it is finished, once for all sacrifice for our sins. And so now Jesus is able to sit down. The imagery in this paragraph is so important. The priests under the Mosaic law were required to stand in order to make the sacrifices. They had to stand. The fact that Jesus now sits down at the right hand of the Father means no more sacrifices. It is finished. That's the best news ever. Jesus has perfected this for all time, for eternity. And that means that none of this is up to us. We merely receive the grace of God. We are forgiven, reconciled, and redeemed, and it's all Jesus. And then this last paragraph, 19 through 25. This is the one that Brian read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, that's the key right there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed, bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day that he's going to return again. And notice the emphasis on community at the end of that paragraph. But look at verse 19. Under the old covenant, access to the most holy place where God supposedly resided, God's quarters, was extremely limited. You and I couldn't get there. We couldn't get there. Only the high priest was allowed. So in our case, it would be Tyler Johnson. He's the only one allowed. Okay. Even in Exodus, as we're going to see in a few weeks, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, the first thing he tells him is, do not come near. You can't come near. Oh, and take off your shoes. <laughs> you can't come here, and you have to be dressed a particular way. But now, through Christ, his once-for-all sacrifice, we, you and I, 
have free and unfettered access to God. We get to come near to him boldly and with confidence. We come to his throne of grace with our heads held up high because of his finished work. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. This is a beautiful thing for you and me. And so we're going to celebrate that now with the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper calls us to draw near and to remember. To memorialize the death of Jesus. To celebrate the fact that he died for us. And to remind us and to tell the world that he's coming again because we're called to do it again. Do it until he comes again.